Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. I am delighted to be back doing shows in 2021, taking a very long break. 2020 was a very busy year for the show. I was doing shows almost weekly there for a while, producing a lot of content in response to the social uprisings really kind of triggered by the death of George Floyd. So again, I ended up taking an extended break, but we're back with new shows. And today is our first show, live show of 2021. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Daniela Dos Santos to the show to discuss diversity efforts in veterinary medicine and how they're shaping up in the United Kingdom. So much of the discourse around diversity kind of centers the U.S. experience working on social justice issues. But the reality is these are issues globally. The lack of diversity is not unique to the U.S., issues around kind of gender, the gender imbalance, that's also a global issue. It's all not just centered in the U.S. So the British also struggle with the lack of racial and ethnic diversity in veterinary medicine. And so our chat today will explore efforts to widen participation in the profession. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, so why don't we start as our custom on the show, guest self-introduce and tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. So as you said, my name is Daniela Dos Santos and I am currently the Senior Vice President of the British Veterinary Association. I'm also a small animal and exotic pet vet in practice. And during my time as a BVA officer, my theme, my focus, my efforts have all been around vet diversity. So championing the diversity of people as well as the diversity of careers we undertake. So that has been my real push over the last three years. When it comes to my background, obviously I am white, but actually I'm not your typical veterinary background. So my parents are immigrants, my mother was a cleaner, my father was a chef, um, lower socioeconomic background, inner city kid, no history of science in my background, no one that had gone to university before me, and it took me five attempts to get into vet school. And even though I am female and white, I got to vet school and I realised I don't quite fit in. And if I didn't quite fit in, there would be others feeling exactly the same as me for various different reasons. And yet, It's such a wonderful profession. I've kind of made it my mission to try and widen access, inclusion as well, because there's a difference between widening access and inclusion. So, yeah, that's been my mission over the last three years, and I am delighted to be here talking about it. Wonderful. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Before we started kind of in our pre-production chat, we were chatting about your Portuguese background. I have been trying to learn Portuguese for years, so I will be chatting with you again after this <laughs> show. About, like, can I send you some of my C-Spot run in Portuguese emails? <laughs> so that you can help me with development. <laughs> So anyway, back to our topic at hand. So what does widening participation actually mean? Because it's a different kind of language. I mean, and not, I mean, of course it's English, but a different kind of lexicon that is being used in in the UK that maybe some of our non-UK members and listeners are not necessarily familiar with. So what does widening participation really mean? 
Yeah, so when we talk about widening participation, we are talking about increasing the diversity and the backgrounds of people that enter our profession. So, you know, when you look at some of the data, our, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons collects um, demographic data every five years or so about our profession. And, and, you know, we're very predominantly white and we are disproportionately privately educated. And so there, there's lots of trends, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. or stereotypes mm-hmm. associated with being a vet in the UK. And so the idea behind widening participation is to actually open up that horizon. It's essentially looking at the stereotypical demographic of a veterinary surgeon in the UK and trying to rubbish that, trying to say, actually, this is not the way it should be, and trying to encourage those from other backgrounds to consider a career as a veterinary surgeon or veterinary nurse, just a career within the veterinary professions. And and I think that's really, really important. And so that's what we talk about, widening participation, widening access. It's encouraging people to consider it because we're in a situation that people are not even considering a career as a veterinary professional for various, various factors, which I'm sure we will delve into as time goes on. Sure. So, so kind of when, what's a bit of the history around this effort? Like how long has, has like BVA really been kind of working on this kind of from a national perspective? Yeah. So I think it has, it's probably safe to say for a few years now, it has been something that the vet schools have been trying to do. You know, the vet schools have their own outreach programs and so on. So it's always been in the background. Um, you know, there's been access programs, what year zero programs or gateway programs. But actually, the national conversation around this, I would say, is actually quite recent. So up until I took post about two and a half years ago, this was not a conversation we were having widely. You know, the issue of discrimination, of access and so on, it just wasn't a conversation that was being widely had. And since I've been at the BVA, we did our um, groundbreaking discrimination in the veterinary profession survey, um, which was uh, phenomenally well responded to. Mm -hmm. We have done lots of work around the good workplace. We have had a uh, winding participation workshop as well. We're working with the Royal College in their diversity and inclusion group. So actually, I would say in the last three years, there's been a concerted effort from various different stakeholders, vet schools, us, the Royal College and the wider profession. And yeah, we're now having these conversations and trying to figure out a way forward. Sure, sure. So what groups, I guess, are included here, right? And so, you know, in, in to, to kind of just com- compare things in, in the U.S., we have our definition at, at ABMC for underrepresented in veterinary medicine, and it covers a number of different areas. So we talk about gender, we talk about race and ethnicity, we talk about educational background and socioeconomic status, and and also geography as well, because we have, you know, um, economically depressed, really, areas that it's just hard for students of any race or gender to kind of, you know, make it out of those kind of regions, right? And so, so that's kind of the framework that we kind of think about here, but what is the framework similar? I also recognize that we use different language, different um, things like um, the BAME, is that yeah. how it's pronounced? Yeah, and so so if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of what's, who's included in the current view of trying to bring them in. <laughs> sure, so I think a couple of things. I think framework should be used very loosely when we're talking about this at the moment okay because there is no at the moment no organized you know national multi-collaborative approach to this at the moment there's recognition that we need to do more and I think if we look at how things are being assessed what factors we're looking at so I think the socioeconomic background is is a big factor here that is being looked at certainly a lot of the widening participation programs 
from the schools, take into account the postcode in which a child has has grown up and been educated because that looks at areas of deprivation and things like that. It also looks at educational backgrounds, so what schools you've been to as well. More recently, because of the uprisings last year, because of the of the um, rightly the light being shone on on the issues around race, that has also come up the agenda in terms of the conversations we're having. And there is also conversations around geography. So, for example, in Scotland, in the Highlands and Islands, these are very remote islands where children may not have access to all the classes that they need to get into vet school and so on. So, there is a wide-reaching sort of look on on this subject what mm-hmm. do we need to do here um, and actually when it comes to gender I think that's also an interesting one so um, when we start talking about things like socioeconomic background race geography educational background when we come to gender we are a disproportionately female profession certainly in the UK and, and increasingly more so you know our student population now is about 80% female and it's interesting when we start having conversations about gender often it's where are the boys and actually it is the perfect place to start for me to talk about intersectionality because yeah. I actually don't think it helps anybody to try and look at all these identifying features, characteristics, whatever demographics, whatever you want to call them. It helps no one to look at them in isolation because mm. we're therefore assuming that all women face the same barriers or all inner city kids face the same barriers or all people of colour face the same barriers. And that's not how it goes. There is, There are compounding factors. There are factors that interlink and so, you know, there are some efforts out there around, for example, bursaries for, for BAME students and things like that, which are great. But longer term, we need to look at the intersectionality of this. If we truly want to widen participation to reflect the society that we as professionals serve, we need to look wider at this. And I often give this as an example. So in the medical profession in the UK, for example, they have done really well in their ethnic diversity. And so they've got a really ethnically diverse medical profession. However, if you look at their socioeconomic demographics, 80% of doctors come from 20% of schools. Ah. So you can see, exactly. So you can see (laughs) if you focus too much on one aspect, you can end up with other imbalances. So yeah, that's, that's where we are at the moment. Oh yeah, the, the intersectionality piece is just so interesting because you know, you know, yeah, we spend globally we spend a lot of time going where are the men, where are the men, where are the men, right? And and certainly, I've given a number of talks about you know kind of what's happening in kind of pre college, you know, primary and secondary education, and kind of thinking about like yeah, they're they're not just at least in the U.S young men are not finishing high school at the same rates, right? And so, you know, the drop-off only just, you know, just continues from there. But when we start looking at, you know, the gender imbalance and issues around race and issues around socioeconomic status, you know, we have, you know, yeah, there might be more women of color, but is it proportional? Not even close, right? Not even close. And so there's still things that we need to talk to, talk about with respect to that. The other thing is that, you know, the the piece around gender is we're so focused on talking about students that a lot of times we don't talk about kind of what happens post (laughs) degree, right? And just kind of the ascension to leadership for women and, and women tend to, to ascend to leadership at much later rates than their male counterparts in part because we're doing other things like kids and <laughs> families and 
managing households in addition to, you know, whatever professions we're, we're doing. And so, you know, we wake up and we're like, oh, it's four, I'm 45. Like, I think I can actually do some volunteer work now. Right. And so it's, you know, it, these are, these are just long stem challenges that, that affect folks at very different stages of life. So really, really something to, to be mindful of. So Daniela, tell us about, you know, well, what is BVA doing? And so let's start with kind of maybe recruitment efforts. So yeah. what's happening there? So, so we are at the beginning of uh, what I hope is putting some foundations in place. To, as you say, we're at the, at the end of this very long stem. And, you know, any change is going to take a decade easily because the evidence we have is that we need to be encouraging children, young children, to think about a career in the veterinary professions and then nurturing them through. And it's not as simple as an individual touch point. So there are various things we're doing. So as BVA, we have done various things. So for example, I was a STEM ambassador for British Science Week. I'm doing lots of outreach programs, sorts of like that, saying, hello, hi, I'm here. Five attempts in the city kids, you can do it too. You don't have to look a certain way. I'm championing the my diversity theme and so on, as I've already said. We did our discrimination survey, which, um, mm. as you've just touched on the gender thing, is actually interesting. The discrimination show, survey demonstrated that discrimination was more prevalent if you were a woman mm-hmm. and also based on your race, which was considering how, how white we are, that to be the second most common discrimination was interesting so basically we've done this collating of data as well so the discrimination survey the good workplace survey we're we're collating data about where are the problems what are the challenges we did our widening participation workshop trying to learn from our medical counterparts because Mm -hmm. you know there is no point repeating the same mistakes we should learn from other professions and, and it's naive to think that just because we're vets we're different we're not we face the same social challenges as everybody else in society and so now as I said, I sit on the Royal College's Diversity and Inclusion Group. So that has just published the strategy um, looking at widening participation as well as inclusion within the profession. We're currently at BVA working with STEM learning. So we're looking to develop a resource to try and get out there into schools. We're not entirely sure what it will look like at this stage. We'll be working closely with educators because ultimately mm-hmm. we need their expertise. I'm not an educator. We are not educators. We don't understand how this works. So we're going to work with them to try and discover what best resources there are. So that's the starting point. You know, a couple of bits and pieces here. Mm-hmm. I would love in the long term to end up with a national program that includes work experience, that includes access to role models and so on. But that needs collaboration and funding. And I think a challenge, and I don't know if you feel like that uh, about the states as well, is actually bringing people together, mm-hmm. bringing people together to work together, to not be protect, almost not be protective of their own work, because we're not going to get there if we all act in silos. We're not yeah. going to get there if we all act individually. So at the moment, yeah, like I say, outreach program, pushing, pushing this conversation. Um, I take part in the National Health Careers Conference, which is the biggest widening participation conference um, for healthcare um, in the UK. It's free for students to attend. And with our involvement, there's been a 600% increase in children in attending that are interested in the career in the veterinary profession. So we're doing lots of bits and pieces, but it's just the beginning. We need long-term funding and collaboration. This is not going to change without it. Yeah, that's that's just so important. And, you know, I think that it's it's, I guess, a couple of a couple of notes. One, yes, it's absolutely important for us to to remember that just because women kind of take up the most space, (laughs) 
I guess, in the profession does not mean that they are free from harassment or from marginalization, right? So that's that's one thing I think is really, really important to highlight in your comment. And the other thing, and this is a, um, a drum I beat on a regular basis, do not recreate the wheel, people. There's research out there and stop saying, yeah, but it's not published in a veterinary journal. Yes, it's not because you never did it before. But look, look there's 50 years of research <laughs> in other disciplines. <laughs> you know what's also really, really interesting? So in the UK, um, there is a longitudinal study called the, called the Aspire study that's looked at kids, you know, from, from a really young age. I think they're now in their early 20s now. Same kids, same families, and mm-hmm. has looked at their interest in STEM subjects. The barriers are there clearly written down in their in their research. It tells you what we need to do. It talks about how it's linked to social inequalities and social injustices. It talks about how we need to increase science capital. It talks about the fact that outreach programs have a marginal effect because this is about the environment in which children go up in. And sometimes that's a difficult pill to swallow. Because yes. we as a profession want to, but we went out to the local school and we did this and we did that. That is all great. But that is not going to make the long term difference. So we do need to listen to the evidence that says we need funding, that says we need collaborative efforts, that says we need a longitudinal longitudinal effort as well. If we're going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I am absolutely supportive and certainly encourage folks to go to the career days and, you know, the show and tells and all of that. And, and I think exposure is is so critical. However, one, I also want to, and I say this a lot too, don't assume that black, brown, poor, immigrant, whatever, kids don't dream. They do. There are gates. <laughs> but, but that is what the aspires show. There is no lack of aspiration or interest or anything oh. like that. And I, yeah. you know, I don't fully understand the educational system in, in the US, but certainly what we're finding here is that actually probably for decent long-term significant change you need changes in educational policy you know in, it's highlighted that we have educational gatekeeping in in, in our yeah. education system if you're not super smart super brainy over you go there don't bother with the science it's not for you and um, you know certain certain areas of the country teachers will actively say i don't think veterinary medicine's for you if you yeah. have a high turnover of teacher or poor quality teaching in a school they're less likely to go for it we perpetuate this elitist system where we say it's so difficult to become a vet is it it? you just need need the support behind you don't you you need the educational support behind you you need the societal support behind you and you can make it but like you say if there are gates and barriers and you know deviations on your way it makes it so much harder Right. It does. And, and, you know, our our collective response has historically been to pathologize those folks like, oh, well, either they're not interested because they haven't had exposure. And I'm like, no, no, they they do. They dream (laughs) or, you know, they just don't want to do this. They found something else. And I'm like, no, there were just, you know, you scale one barrier and then there's like five more. (laughs) So it just makes it really challenging for students coming from challenging places to to achieve right and so 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 okay so Daniela you all have done all of this great stuff and in a few years you're going to see like this wonderful burgeoning applicant pool to vet schools in the UK like we're just gonna like ignore the facial expressions like really are we gonna do that (laughs) we are definitely gonna do it we are definitely gonna do that um 
And so, you know, then, you know, you mentioned that you were serving with a group at uh, the Royal College, Royal Veterinary College in London. So, you know, what's going on with, you know, the colleges? And I know a lot of the colleges in the UK are working on these these issues as well, working on widening participation. But what we're finding is that, you know, yeah, that's one chunk. <laughs> exactly. And we are another gatekeeper, <laughs> right? Admissions committees are another gatekeeper. So, so what are we talking about and thinking about in the UK around admissions? Yeah. So just to, for, for the listeners who are not familiar with the UK system, so the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons are essentially our regulator. Ah, so uh, in terms of you, I think in the States, you have different regulators in different states. We have an overarching regulator, which is the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Right. They are also a royal college, but they are the ones that, you know, uh, will maintain education standards and so on. And then we have the veterinary schools. So I think oh, our terminology is slightly RBC different. And RBC. <laughs> RBC and RCVS. So RCVS, we park. That's our, our regulator. RBC, for example, is one of the vet schools. So we call them yes. schools. And we have various schools in the, in the UK. And each individual school deserves credit because they are really, really working hard to widen participation and they are doing things such as contextual admissions, which I only recently understood the word contextual. You go to a 16 year old and go, don't worry, you can get into vet school because there's a contextual admission service. They just look at you and go, what? There's a thing about language here, but they are doing things like taking into account, you know, uh, the area in which you grew up, you know, because certainly in the UK, uh, the schools at which you go to have a real impact on on the likelihood of you getting decent grades and so on. So they're taking into account that. The RVC, for example, has really good, a really good gateway program. So it's an mm-hmm. access program to allow students from disadvantaged, disadvantaged or non-traditional backgrounds to come in. So there are concerted efforts. Each school is different. There will be differences in grade requirements. Often the grade requirements are dropped we can have a conversation about dropped grade requirements because I think um, that's uh, an interesting factor. But why they do it is because they take into account not every child has the same opportunity or the same educational chances. And so they take into account that perhaps a child from a school with high turnover of teachers and a poor, you know, a poor history, mm-hmm. if they come out with four Bs, actually, that's absolutely incredible. And so they're taking that contextual offer. Oh, so they're doing okay. things like that. They have some of them are not looking at predicted grades anymore. So we know. Um, so in the UK, you will get a predicted grade before you sit your exams. And those predicted grades are often inaccurate. They are, are full of biases as well. Um, you know, it depends what schools you yeah, go to and things sure. like that. So there are some universities now who are not looking at predicted grades. There are others that are not using teacher statements either, because if you think about it, if you're in a well-funded school, your teacher statements, and this isn't, and I'm not casting aspersions on teachers, I just want to be clear here, yeah, but sure, if you are sure. a teacher in an underfunded school, your workload is enormous. You have so many challenges to face, the social impacts on your students, all sorts of stuff. So if you have a child that goes to a well-funded school with a teacher who has all the support they need, that teacher will be able to provide the support and the statement. A teacher working unbelievably hard in a deprived area just won't have that sport and time to be able to give to that student so not 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 no expressions on teachers it's just the reality no, of the it's society. just the reality yeah yeah and so they're doing things like that they also have student outreach programs so there's a group of students um, at the RVC called animal aspirations i yeah. love them. i think they are absolutely amazing true and truly inspirational group of students they are going out doing the role modeling that you know we need to do you can't be what you can't see and those guys are going out and going you can be this look this is amazing so we're doing things like that there are membership bodies as well that are are playing parts here so I think the schools are doing really good work but Mm -hmm. 
they're limited by geography because often the outreach is just around where they are. They're limited by kids that are already showing an interest. So you're still missing all those other kids. <laughs> the society has told no, you can't be a vet for mm. whatever reasons mm-hmm. society decides to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're always just fighting that battle of you know this is this is also I think that that we've all seen over the years is that it's only really been in more recent years that the profession has had to recruit. Right. And so because there was always, you know, this plethora of folks that were just like, oh, I was born and I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and now there are just so many. I mean, you know, we're beyond just the industrial age. We're almost beyond the tech age where everything is just so different. And there's so many careers that didn't exist five years ago, right? And so the competition for kind of career choice is is tough. And yet we still know though that the majority of applicants to veterinary school express an interest before the age of 10, right? I mean, so you got to catch them young and you got to keep, you know, following them to sustain that, the interest and provide the support, you know, to scale the gates. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the Aspires Research Project calls that science capital. Mm. So it talks about, you know, it's what exposure do you have in your day to day life to science? So you might have and which and which is why we have to realize that outreach programs and, and these really brilliant, you know, me doing a STEM talk or someone going out in schools is great at the time. But you go in, you inspire that kid and then off you go. And then they're left in a system where the teachers go, no, 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 vet school is far, far too difficult to go into. Why don't you think about this? A family who might go, oh, no, no, that's really, really difficult. No access to books, no access to even the Internet, for example, no access to role models, no access to anyone to talk to. So it's about sustained, as you say, points of contact, yeah. support all the way through. But it's really important. We've touched on it a couple of times. We can recruit diverse people into our profession. We can work hard to do that. But unless we also focus on inclusion, making people feel valued, seeing people's worth, making them welcome into the profession, I would question morally whether we should be doing that. Because you don't want to bring diverse people into a profession to then make them feel like they don't belong. Right. A profession where, you know, they have the emotional labor of just doing the work and then emotional labor of being in a potentially hostile environment, which this is a great segue to talk about the workplace campaign, Good Workplaces. So if you could talk us a little bit about that, which really gets into kind of the inclusion efforts, which I think a lot of folks don't spend enough time talking about They need to go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. They do need to go hand in hand. I would argue morally, if they don't go hand in hand, we should not be widening participation. But let's talk about inclusion. So we in the UK have had a recruitment and retention problem for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it comes back to evidence. For many years, there was anecdote. This is why it's happening. That's why it's happening. And actually, BVA took it upon themselves to go, actually, if we want to find a solution, we need to identify the problem. Mm-hmm. We need to identify why this is happening. And so we undertook various pieces of research with the University of Exeter. So first of all, we did a, a piece looking at motivation, satisfaction and retention. So why is it that people stay or leave the profession? Interestingly, the the highlights were things around feeling like you fit in, feeling like you're valued, feeling like you have role models that, um, you know, people can look up to you. Pay, which is often brought up, was a hygiene factor. Pay is a hygiene factor here. It is about how you fit in, how you are valued. And so that came up very strongly that that's why people stay or leave. Now, there are various reasons why you feel like you fit in or you don't or you're valued or you don't. And, and we could dig into those. But ultimately, that was that issue there. But interestingly, in the middle of it appeared this 
gender discrimination. And so we picked up, we said, okay, so someone is saying that gender discrimination means they're more likely to leave someone who's a group of people. And so we did a second study on that and we looked at gender discrimination in the profession. And what we did was we surveyed about 260 managers or practice owners, basically people in charge of recruitment. Okay. We provided them with uh, a CV and a worksheet of a vet and we blindly gave them one or the other. The only differences was one was Mark, one was Elizabeth, right? And we asked them to rate these vets in terms of competence, how much they would pay them, would they encourage them to go for promotion, how much would they see them as, you know, being a good source of information. As a separate question, we asked them, do you still think gender discrimination exists in the profession? Now, what we found was that those that there was gender discrimination. So Mark was seen as more competent, would be paid significantly more, would be pushed for more promotions, et cetera, would be seen as a more valuable point of advice for, for colleagues. But that was far more likely when an individual felt gender discrimination was not a problem. So it's the unconscious bias. I mean, you're nodding your head. You knew this was going to happen. But again, there's this feeling that for some reason that the profession thinks we're different to society. Of course we're not. We, we, we don't live in an isolated bubble. So there we had it. We had evidence of where the problem was. And actually, it was that gender discrimination piece that I looked at and I said, but if gender discrimination is such a factor, there will be other forms of discrimination. That's why we did our discrimination survey. And actually, we came up with some flack uh, for some flack by skeptics you know our first one was very much a please tell us it was an open book we weren't trying to establish how how prevalent it was or anything like that and, and there were people saying oh well you can't use this data because you didn't give me an option say i'd never experienced discrimination so then we did a second survey with that option interestingly the results were exactly the same Exactly. <laughs> so then we used all, yeah we used all of this data i know i know we use all of this data and we've put together the bva's good workplaces um guide and there's a monetary code and it's got i think seven or seven chapters in it that looks at different aspects of what makes a good workplace it talks about culture it talks about equality diversity and inclusion pay and hours remuneration all sorts of different things there's a whole chapter about diversity and inclusion which comes to that saying that i've heard repeatedly you can invite everyone to the party, but you've got to make sure everyone dances as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that, that, there's a whole chapter on that, trying to help people who perhaps want to make their workplace a more inclusive place, but have no idea how to start. It gives mm -hmm. them the option there. It also helps people reflect, am I really as inclusive as I think I am? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's it's the the findings are not surprising to me. They are consistent with similar studies across not just veterinary medicine, like that's just a, that's a, a very common finding in that yeah, type yeah. of study across workspaces, right? And so that, you know, it's like, oh no, I'm objective. No, me, I, <laughs> I am objective. Yep. And Mark is still the better candidate. And, and, you know, that's fine. There are some folks that will genuinely think that. But again, when we kind of look across this, these data, in total, there's a very clear pattern. When we look at salary comparisons, there's almost always a very clear pattern. And, you know, and then again, even though we see that women are making up such a huge proportion of the profession does not mean that they're immune to marginalization. And so I think it's really um, important. And if it can happen to the biggest group, <laughs> just to think about what might be happening for groups that are really underrepresented and are otherwise marginalized. 
But but that's what the discrimination survey showed us. I think it was in second place. Off the top of my head, I think it's about 23% of reported instances of discrimination were related to race. When less than 3% of the profession identify as being from a BAME background. That's huge. And, and, and And there's an interesting theme, I think, between the data of you know, inclusion, but also the data of widening participation is in what works, what doesn't, why we have the problem, is data makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable to think that actually we're not in a just or fair society or that perhaps their own unconscious bias is playing a part in this. And and so we have to to accept that the data makes us uncomfortable. We can't change anything unless we listen to the data. And as scientists, we talk about evidence-based medicine. Why is it any different when you are presented with data about us as people as opposed to, I don't know, cruciate disease in a dog or mastitis in cattle? Why why are we not accepting data as data? You are, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because I mean, you know, we see these, we we see these things, these, these, these research papers and these uh, reports and things and, you know, and, yeah, they tell us things that, you know, make us not feel that great <laughs> about the collective, right? And so then folks kind of attack the methodology and they're like, oh yes. yeah, but was the decimal point here? And does that really, or is there false positives? Or <laughs> The best one I heard was when I was having this kind of difficult conversation about barriers to access, so widening participation and so on, and I pushed someone to go and read the Aspire study because it's a brilliant study. It's yes. scientifically sound. And all they came back to me with was ignoring all the data saying well in the, in the in the introduction they talk about social justice so of course it's already biased from the outset and I was like but actually it's not just have a read it's very accurate and this is the only way we're going to change things but but there we go yeah it's just so, yeah there are times when I feel like I'm like yeah yeah skip to page three <laughs> just <laughs> start reading there start reading at page three so so with all of these things you know one of the things that you mentioned was a major increase in kind of enrollment in these STEM programs as as one certainly element of success what other things have you felt like in this kind of short high intensity period have have worked or you know really seem to have a great impact so I think I think there are a few things that have have worked. So I've already talked about animal aspiration. So student-led role modeling is brilliant at the moment. You know, animal aspirations has now expanded into other universities as well, having started at the RVC. So that is amazing. We're also talking about this. You know, we weren't talking about this th- three, four, five years ago. So we're talking about this. We're formalizing the conversation. You know, I, I led up this um, hashtag big conversation where I spoke of, off the back of the discrimination survey. I spoke to BVES, the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society, talking candidly and openly about the challenges there. BVLGBT plus. So looking at, you know, those from the LGBT plus community and talking about their challenges even with veterinary spoonholders who are a support group for those with chronic illnesses and disabilities. So we are formalizing this conversation. We are having a conversation that we were not having before. And whilst it's a small step, I think it's a really important step because it's, it's, you can't hide from a conversation that's being had openly, even if the conversation makes you uncomfortable. So that was good. And we've done membership organizations have also, also done showcasing role modeling so when I became president of the BVA we had a spread in our journal about different vets from different backgrounds with different experiences we all looked completely different just a role model uh, BVLGBT plus do that as well BVEDs are also doing it 
the university sectors are taking this very seriously now. So the vet schools are taking this seriously, which is really, really important as well. Um, and with their outreach programs, and, and we've already touched on some of the admissions things around, you know, excluded, not using predicted grades and peers support uh, uh, and um, teacher statements and so on. So there are lots of small things and mm. I do not want to dismiss them because I think they're all brilliant and they weren't happening a few years ago. But it is not enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what's, you know, in, in terms of that it's not enough, what, ha- what, what have you found to be the most challenging in kind of launching this effort? Because it is, it is a relatively new effort and, you know, there's always going to be some resistance. <laughs> Okay, like, why aren't you okay? Yeah, so originally it was that one of them was you can't be what you can't see. But actually, I think as a veterinary profession, we have got more and more role models coming forward. I have to say that um, we have to be slightly careful that we don't pin the whole hopes of a demographic on a small number of people, that we don't assume that all women are like me, for example, in leadership positions, that we don't assume or people from, that identify as being from a BAME background have the same feelings, thoughts, processes, challenges, barriers, but we do have more role models. Challenges bringing the profession with us. That is a huge, huge challenge. There are still sceptics, accusations of um, identity politics, people not seeing the value of having a diverse profession. And, you know, the starting point is diversity is a good thing. End of story. I, I, I do not understand why this is still a discussion, but there's that issue. Language is important as well because we need to consider, you know, contextual. 15, 16 year old doesn't know what contextual means. Also influencing the influencers. So we need to take into account when we look at, as we've touched on, teachers, family members, earlier on in children's careers. Biggest yeah. problem in my, one of the biggest problems in my opinion, however, Funding, 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 and collaboration. So I'm going to be slightly controversial that it it looks good to be interested in certain subjects. And it's very good to say we're working on X, Y, or Z. And it's great to have individual projects and put them up as a sign of success. But long-term success only happens if all organisations work together and if people put money into their pockets. We cannot expect to change the expectations and the dreams and the opportunities of a generation with no funding and no collaborative effort. So I guess my, my, that is my bottom line. There are plenty of us out there who are willing to do this work, but it needs to be funded and organisations need to work together in order to make this happen. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Increase those budgets, people. Open those wallets. And yeah, like you have to fund these things. And, you know, I think that this is also a big challenge because I think that uh, there's a lot of folks um, who, you know, there are a lot. I'm, I'm so happy to see so many veterinary organizations here in Arad that are really, really interested in doing, you know, this kind of work and really kind of thinking critically about the future of the profession. Because it's not just like here and now, but this is really kind of looking out into the profession 20, 30, 40, 50 years and kind of, you know, thinking about what um, surrounding demographics are and how we're going to meet the needs of a changing society. And, you know, that just doesn't happen on, you know, a quid. <laughs> right? It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, happen on goodwill. It, it just won't happen right? on goodwill. Yeah. How, yes. how, can we, how can we ever reach the children in 
far-flung geographical places? How can we ever reach the children in deprived areas? How can we ever reach children from a BAME background or the travelling community, for example, in, in the UK as well? How can we ever reach them on goodwill alone when we know that the evidence says they need sustained support to get over the educational and social inequalities that prevent them from being able to enter our profession? You yeah. cannot do that without funding. And you cannot do that without collaboration and a long-term effort. Yeah. I mean, if we're willing to invest in, you know, being technologically ready for the next generation, we, we need to be investing time, money, talents, and money, time, talents, <laughs> um, you know, in making sure that we have the workforce to actually use that stuff, right? And so, um, yeah, just... Yeah, funding typically is a big is a big challenge for everyone. And, and, you know, I often tell people that, you know, we pay for what's important and we spend money on things that we find deeply important and resonating. And and so if you say that you're committed to this, if you say that it's a core value, then your budget should actually reflect that. And how is there anything that's more valuable than people? And, and I don't say that as a throwaway comment. I genuinely, you know, all the businesses you have out there, the educational establishments, everything is based around people. We yeah. should be willing to fund this. We should be willing to help people, to support people in coming into the profession because without doubt, diversity is a good thing. It's beneficial for everyone, for individuals, for businesses, for societies and for animal health and welfare. You know, if 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 a marginalised community doesn't trust the veterinary profession, but they see someone just like them who understands the way they think, the way they live, you know, why they put a certain value on certain animals, they are more likely to access health veterinary healthcare. They are more likely to trust what we say. So yeah. Anyway, I'll get off my high horse now. No, we like high horses on this show. <laughs> like so. <laughs> That's what this show is committed to, High Horses. No, thank you so much. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. So, you know, I know that BVA is on social media. Can you tell us, uh, tell folks where they can find more about BVA and uh, what you all are doing? Yep. So uh, obviously our website, bva.co.uk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, British Vets, you'll find us there. Hashtag time for change, uh, hashtag vet diversity, hashtag big conversation. They're all the places that you can find us. And if you are in the States and want to find out more, want to let me know about your experiences, any good learnings, any things that we could learn from, please reach out. Otherwise, if you're in the UK and you want to have more conversations, please, please also reach out. We can only do this together. We can only do this with a collaborative and concerted effort. This is so much more than just you or I or individual organizations. It needs whole scale change. It needs a profession to come with us. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much, Dr. DeSantos, uh, for uh, joining me this morning or afternoon for you. Um, and I look forward to, to having more of these kinds of conversations. There is so much going on over there. Yes, with Animal Aspirations, I'm interested in, in having this kind of chat with them. And, and of course, um, we are not going to get into it on this show, but then there's this like gigantic recent report that just came out that says institutional racism is just apparently not a thing um, there. Um, and so, yeah, I'll be 
having another show to kind of definitely dig into that at some point, because I think it's a, um, a fascinating report and probably one that will have um, spillover into other countries as well, saying, see, they don't have a problem. We probably don't have a problem either, right? So uh, thank you so much again. This has been another episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook. Thanks so much. And we will hear you and listen to you and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.